In the late 80s, a career that once seemed so promising had since faded, and to Kevin, it seemed like it might be over. After years of bit parts, and even a stint on a television soap opera, the young man thought he had finally made it with films like Diner in 1982 and the mega-hit Footloose in 1984. But soon after, a string of failures... Films like Quicksilver, End of the Line, and Lemon Sky put his future in doubt. As the 1980s came to a close, his agent told him of an offer for a starring role. He told the actor it was about giant worms underground. Kevin Bacon thought, oh my god, my career's in the toilet. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the toilet. What about the Twinkies? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas Multipass. Multipass. You know this multipass. Your stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. into the wrong goddamn rec room, didn't you, you bastard? Well, hello there. My name is Jeff Kelly, and welcome to the sixth episode of Celluloid Days, a podcast of film and film history. Today, I'm going to talk about the 1990 film Tremors. First, however, how about a story? Years ago, I was talking to a friend. Somehow, during our conversation, I mentioned I was a fan of the first two Godfather films and Once Upon a Time in America, He then proceeded to recommend to me gangster films, lots of gangster films. What he didn't understand was I don't have any special affinity towards gangster films. I just happen to like a couple of films about mobsters because, well, they're good films that I enjoy watching. The fact that their subject matter is about bad people with Tommy guns is irrelevant. When I first saw ads for the film Tremors, I dismissed it as I thought it was not my kind of film. Come on, really? Killer underground worms? But eventually I did watch the film and I actually had a good time. My dismissal of the film was the same backwards logic as my friend with the gangster films. It turns out that the type of film, the subject matter, the setting, the plot are all irrelevant. The only thing that matters is whether I enjoy watching the film or not. It's sort of like music. When I was young and arrogant, I would dismiss certain types of music, like I don't like country music. As I grew as a person, I realized that some country music was actually pretty good. So, like I said, I like 1990s Tremors. It's the perfect film for what it is. It's one of those films I'll put on every now and again, whenever I just want to sit back and have a good time. I suppose it could be considered a popcorn movie. It's a unique film because it really doesn't fit into any category. It's sort of its own thing. I mean, it's sort of a drama, it's sort of a comedy, it's sort of a horror movie, it's sort of a monster movie. It reminds me a bit of Big Trouble in Little China, another movie that is pretty much its own thing. And both movies, because of their uniqueness, suffered the same fate, but I'll talk about that a little later. 
Now, I don't think I have to talk about the plot, right? I mean, I'm sure you've seen the film, but quickly, it's the story of a small group of people in a tiny, isolated town in the high desert east of the Sahara Nevada mountains who are trying to survive these underground snake worm-like things that pop up here and there to have a meal. And that meal is usually people. The two main characters are handymen, Valentine and Earl, played by Kevin Bacon and Fred Ward. You might remember Bacon from Friday the 13th and Ward from Remo Williams' The Adventure Begins. Or maybe you know them from Footloose and the Right Stuff. Living on the outskirts of town is a survivalist couple, Bert and Heather Gummer, played by Michael Gross and Reba McIntyre. Gross, of course, was the father in the TV show Family Ties in the 80s, and Reba, well, this was her first movie, and for those of you who don't know, she is known for her country music. Rhonda LeBeck is a graduate student conducting seismology tests in the area, and she's played by Finn Carter. Carter was on the TV soap opera As the World Turns for three years, and since Tremors has done a lot of TV work. But recently, she's had a bit of legal trouble, but we won't get into that. In the town, there are characters such as Melvin Plug, played by Bobby Jacoby. He's an irritating kid who loves jokes. And then there's Nancy and her daughter Mindy, played by Charlotte Stewart and Ariana Richards. Mindy loves to jump on a pogo stick, which is a problem because the creatures, called graboids, hunt by sound. Now, Charlotte Stewart, the actress who plays the mother, has had a long acting career that started in 1961 in a film called VD, or Damaged Goods. It was one of those films that try to scare teens into avoiding premarital sex. Mindy is played by Ariana Richards. You might know her as Lex, the young girl from the film Jurassic Park. She would return to the Tremors franchise in the second sequel, Tremors 3 Back to Perfection. She had a much larger role in that Tremors film. The only other real character of note is Victor Wong as Walter Chang. Victor, of course, is best known as Egg Shen from John Carpenter's 1986 cult film Big Trouble in Little China. He's great, and if I had one complaint about this film is they kill him off way too early. Oh, I probably should have said spoiler alert, but my podcast is always filled with spoilers. Most of the other cast is just there for a graboid food. There's a couple, Megan and Jim Wallace, who are building their dream home out in the middle of the desert, and they become victims of the prehistoric beast in a scene that always saddens me. I mean, usually in monster films, the monster kills promiscuous teenagers and villains, not a sweet, loving couple like the Wallaces. But I think the whole cast is just wonderful. I really do. I can't think of one actor who's miscast. Now, the origins of the story starts with Steve Wilson. Steve was editing films for the Navy. The base that he worked on was in the middle of the desert. On weekends, he would wander around and climb rocks. One day, while sitting on a rock, he wrote a note to himself that said, What if there was something under the ground and I couldn't get off this rock? Steve would go on to start a writing partnership with Brent Maddock, a friend from the University of Southern California. The writing team first wrote a script called Short Circuit, and it was given to Nancy Roberts, the woman who would eventually become their agent. 
but before she signed them, she wanted to know what else they had. By the way, the first script would be made into a 1986 film starring Ali Sheedy, Steve Gutenberg, and Fisher Stevens. Anyway, as per Nancy's request, they pulled out the idea for The Man on the Rock. The original title was Land Shark, but of course there was a famous Saturday Night Live skit from the first season called Land Shark. Now the two had another friend from college, Ron Underwood, who worked for National Geographic as a documentary director. With his help, they turned the Land Shark idea into the film we know as Tremors. For Ron, it would become his first feature as a director. The hardest part about writing the story, according to Wilson and Maddock, was finding the right tone. Should it be a comedy, drama, or tragedy? After seven drafts, they found, in my opinion, the perfect combination of comedy and horror. That's a very difficult thing to do, and I think it's where most people fail when they try to do something similar. For the two, they took so long getting it right that their agent, Nancy Roberts, finally called them and said, I don't care where you're at. I'm going to send the script police to pick it up. They shopped the idea around for a while without much success, but eventually Universal picked it up and gave them money to get it going. The first thing they did was find a location, and they picked a place just outside Lone Pine, California, the isolated community of Darwin, California. It was close to Los Angeles, about three hours away, and it had a beautiful landscape, perfect for perfection, the fictional town. Best of all, it had boulders, which was necessary for the plot of the film. They built the town in the middle of the desert from nothing. A lot of the buildings were derelict wooden buildings that production designer Ivo Cristante found while driving down the highway. He would buy them for like $25 a piece, disassemble them, and rebuild them in perfection. Evo said, You're playing in a big toy box, you know, as an art director. If it isn't fun, you're not doing it right. The thing about Evo, he had very little money and very little time, about two months to create the whole town. And some of the buildings were quite a challenge, like Chang's store. The roof had to be able to collapse and then be reset for another take. The creature design was by Tom Woodruff Jr. and Alec Gillis. They had the luxury of the fact that the script didn't say much about the creatures, with the exception of it being worm-like and having three snake-like mouths inside one larger mouth, so they were free to be creative. They would bring in nature books to the meetings and look through them to get ideas from real animals. Things like skin texture, coloring, and movement. Now, the original mouth had a skin-like covering, but according to some people, that made it look like a penis. Someone said to them, we're not going to make a movie about giant dicks chasing people through the desert. You know, sometimes you need an outside voice to point out the obvious. I really don't have time to go into all the special effects, but they are all practical and look fantastic. Yes, kids, there was a time before computers did all the work. They used some miniatures, some animatronics, and many hand puppets. If you're interested, there are a couple of Making of Tremors videos on YouTube, and they really go into great detail about the graboid effects. But now, why don't we take a break from my rambling and hear Nancy Fry's perspective. Hey folks, it's time again for a couple of disjointed thoughts by me 
on today's film. Oh, what can I say? This is my second viewing of Tremors. The first was sometime in the mid-90s, not long after the film was made. Well, my husband Gordon and I were visiting a friend in Nevada where we often traveled from our home in Stockton, California to help him with his small retail business in Reno. We usually watched a movie in the evenings, and one night, the movie provided for our enjoyment was this one. I'd never even heard of it. When I looked at the cover, I groaned. I settled in to probably fall asleep on the sofa. Let's just say I wasn't really into monster movies, at least ones that didn't have little silhouettes of two robots and a janitor across the bottom of the screen. Then a funny thing happened. The opening titles rolled and then opened with a panoramic shot of a guy standing at the edge of a desert canyon. Yeah, it looked like a matte painting, but it was a really good one. This became a running theme for me with this film. Obvious practical effects, but really good ones. Monster puppets for close-ups, but really well-done puppets expertly manipulated. Good sound, good composite shots, great casting. A story that moves along nicely in a classic three-act structure. Realistic dialogue. What's not to like? By the halfway point, I was thinking, you know, this is a silly monster movie, but it's a better film than most non-genre stuff that's getting made these days. It's not slapstick, but it never tries to be super serious either. The initial musical score fits the setting. Acoustic guitars, banjos, harmonicas. Then later, when things start getting crazy, it's all symphonic urgency, and it's so smoothly integrated I didn't even notice the switch on the second viewing. If you can't guess by now, I like this film. I also want to point out that the business we used to help our friend with in Reno was a gun store, so you can guess why he likes this movie. By five minutes in, you already have a great location, solid camera work, and some action and dialogue that introduce our lead characters quite nicely. We even have a hint at upcoming trope subversion with Fred Willard's character, Earl, chiding Kevin Bacon's character, Val, for his never-ending search for the perfect woman. Perfect being a laundry list of very superficial characteristics. When Earl expresses his distaste for empty-headed bimbos, calling them dead weight, it's a hint that we're in for a female protagonist who's a lot more than just a pretty face. And that's another thing I like about this movie. Every setup has a payoff. If the camera lingers on a geographical feature or a vehicle or some dialogue about something a character cares about, it's going to have a payoff later. This is how to write a serviceable screenplay. Now back to the casting. Kevin Bacon is in his prime young buck phase here with his blow-dried mane of rock star hair, and he's a great foil for his older, wiser friend Earl, played by chin-stubbly, sunburned Fred Willard. Willard's one of those actors you instantly believe as a working-class, salt-of-the-earth guy. You totally buy that he can start a two-stroke engine with one pole. Finn Carter, as geology student Rhonda, is perfect, too. She's not a glamorous supermodel type, but is adorable and outdoorsy and plays the character with charm. More serious, big-budget movies, even in the 80s and 90s, were already casting willowy Barbie doll types as scientists, engineers, astronauts, etc. in action adventures, and they suffer for it, in my opinion. They're just not believable. The cast of this film just feels real. From the doctor and his wife, to the general store owner, instantly recognizable as Egg Shen from Big Trouble in Little China, to the Gummers in their hardened prepper hideout. Speaking of the Gummers, 
Jeff probably covers this, but Bert Gummer has the best line in the whole dang movie. You broke into the wrong dang rec room. Some of you may know that my husband Gordon had a podcast for a while, and may again, called Gordon's Gun Closet, so he's a big fan of the Gummers. While I think the set decorators on this movie did a bang-up job, I must say that the Gummers' basement could have had a little more stuff in it. There was a lot of empty space on those walls. Not that I have any personal experience with that, of course. That said, we both laughed out loud when Bert went for the elephant gun. I thought it was a lion gun. Nope, says Gordon. Elephant. Looks like an eight bore. Maybe four. Translation. Big dang rounds. Perfect for monster hunting. Also, this movie has the best and most tone-perfect use of a Desert Eagle 50 Cal Action Express pistol. In other movies, it just comes across as overkill. Kind of cartoony. Speaking of killing stuff, the amount of design, thought, and care that went into the monsters in this thing is, I think, amazing. Whatever they were paid, they should have gotten more. Again, more serious films than this wish they had such good monsters. The puppeteering alone is Oscar-worthy. Finally, I applaud the Carpenters and the FX people on this. Not since Paint Your Wagon have I seen such a group of unstable, breakable buildings They obviously had some very skilled hydraulics riggers on this, and it was all worth the effort. You really feel that these people are in grave danger. I'll close with my favorite scene in the film. It starts with our three leads pole vaulting from boulder to boulder to get to Rhonda's truck without encountering the monsters, then concludes with them speeding away with her driving the truck with her feet sticking out of the back of the cab window and her hand on the gas pedal. Now, it sounds silly when I describe it, but it works so well in the moment as a time-efficient strategy that I cheered out loud just like I did 20-something years ago. Thanks, Nancy. It's almost weird that our experiences and thoughts on Tremors is so similar. As for my favorite scene, I think it's when Earl and Val are first chased by the creature, and the creature hits that concrete embankment and dies. Stupid son of a bitch. Knocked itself cold. Cold my ass. He's dead. We killed him. We killed it. Fuck you! Hey guys, what's going on? Did you notice anything weird a minute ago? I mean, it just happened. That scene always makes me laugh. Also, I did like one of Michael Gross's other comments. After he throws an explosive, Val asks him, What the hell's in those things, Bert? Few household chemicals in the proper proportion. Perhaps the biggest break the makers of Tremors had was the poor situation Kevin Bacon was in. His career had really taken a downward turn. After Footloose, everything he had done was a bomb. Though I will say he was in a Christopher Guest comedy called The Big Picture, which is a film I really enjoy, but it still was a bomb. Anyway, he was running out of money and needed work. His first thought when his agent offered him the script was, oh my god, my career's really in the toilet. But he said once he read the script, he realized he could have a lot of fun with it. There was one problem with Bacon being in this movie. 
and that was that his wife, Kara Sedgwick, was pregnant. There was one phone installed on the set in the desert, and that was so if his wife went into labor, she could get a hold of him. Ron said that he loved Fred Ward from films like The Right Stuff and Escape from Alcatraz, but it was a 1985 film called Euphoria, a science fiction comedy that was filmed in 1981 but not released until 85, that made him believe Ward was the perfect person for the part of Earl. Now, I've never seen the movie, but it stars Ward, Cindy Williams, and Harry Dean Stanton, so I may have to look it up. And it was perfect casting because the chemistry between Bacon and Ward is just magnificent. No breakfast? I did it yesterday. It was bologna and beans? No, it was eggs. I did eggs. Over easy. The hell you did? Bologna and beans. It's your turn. Probably the oddest casting in the film, and I remember thinking this when I first saw it, was Michael Gross. Gross, I mean, he was Michael J. Fox's good guy dad from the sitcom Family Ties. Talk about against type. And he started filming Tremors one day after his last day of Family Ties. Gross said when he read the script, he liked it, but thought, this is never going to happen. When he read for Ron Underwood, he got so into his character that Gross made Underwood think there were graboids under the office floor. And he got the part. Broke into the wrong goddamn rec room, didn't you, you bastard? Reba McIntyre was brought to the director by the studio. They basically told him that Reba wanted to be in movies. Now, this was his first film, and he really wanted real actors, so his first thought was, this is all I need, a non-actor in the film. So, almost as a courtesy, Ron said that if she would come out to L.A., he would let her read. Almost right when she walked in the door, he was in love. He knew her natural style would be perfect for the role. And he was right. Reba was so good as Heather Gummer that she was nominated for a Saturn Award for Best Supporting Actress. What do you think? Max firepower or this? I go for penetration. The 458, shooting solid, less ammo to carry. As you can imagine, the making of the movie was filled with all types of problems. The first day it snowed, and once it stopped, they had to film in freezing cold weather. Later in the filming, temperatures reached 106 degrees. Dirt and dust were always a problem, and many of the special effects didn't work right on the first try. And they were up against a tight budget and a tight shooting schedule. On the other hand, the isolated location made the cast really bond together. Kevin Bacon said Tremors was the single most fun time I've ever had making a movie in my entire career. The movie is odd in many ways. One oddity is that there's only two indoor sets, Chain Store and the Gummer's Basement. Other than those scenes, it's almost all shot in the desert. And I love the fact that we never find out where the creatures came from. Even the characters never find out. There's no BS explanation. And there are no bad guys in the film. With the exception of Melvin, they're all pretty likable characters. On the last day on the set for Kevin Bacon, the scene in Chang's store in which Chang gets taken down, the phone rang. It was his wife asking how many more setups Kevin had. Three, the girl on the phone told her, and then asked why. 
Well, it turned out she was ready to have the baby. So as soon as Kevin finished the scene he was shooting, he was out of there. By the way, Kevin Bacon and his wife are a true Hollywood oddity, don't you think? Happily married for more than 30 years? Come on now. But in the end, it seemed they had done it. They had made a great movie. A test screening went really well, except for the fact the audience wasn't happy with the end. The original end didn't have Val kissing Rhonda. Val and Bert leave to go to Bixby, but turn around to head back to perfection when they realize Earl doesn't have his cigarette lighter. Sort of using the cigarette lighter as an excuse to go back. But test audiences disapproved. They knew Val and Rhonda should get together, so a new ending was shot, and the movie ends with the two kissing. And before it was released, 20 swear words were edited out to avoid an R rating. But here's something you might not know. The film was a horrible flop. It was a huge bomb. The film was so different, the studio just didn't know how to promote it. The exact same thing happened to another film that's become a cult favorite, and that's Big Trouble in Little China. Both failed at the box office. And now I'm going to have a brief history lesson. There was a time years ago when we didn't have DVDs or Blu-rays. We didn't have streaming services. It was a time when it was hard for movie lovers to see the films they really wanted to see. The best one could hope for was that a TV station would play the film they wanted to see, but they would have to suffer through commercials and probably bad editing for time. But in the early 80s, there was something new. Home videotapes. VHS and Beta. These were big tape cassettes that played on machines in your home. You could rent films on tape from a rental store, and for the first time since the invention of TV, you could pick the movie you wanted to watch and when you wanted to watch it. You could also buy these tapes if you wanted to keep a film in your permanent collection. I know because I still have boxes of them in the basement. To everyone's surprise, one of the first big home video hits was Tremors. It might have been the first film that was a hit because of home video. It was the 90s version of Going Viral. These days, Tremors is considered a classic, and it was all because of home video rentals. It also became very popular on cable TV, which was also starting up at the time. Kevin Bacon said in Tremors, Making Perfection, Most people don't realize that it wasn't a successful movie. Most people I talk to, if I tell them that, they go, Tremors didn't bomb, Tremors is a classic. In fact, it became so popular that six years after the original, a sequel was ordered. And you know what? I enjoyed Tremors 2 Aftershock, and even 2001's Tremors 3 Back to Perfection. Not nearly as much as the original, and here's why. Tremors 2 didn't have Kevin Bacon, Finn Carter, or Reba McIntyre. And for the third one, no Fred Ward. From the third film to the seventh, it's just the Michael Gross show. He was also on a short-lived 2003 Tremors TV series. You know, sometimes films work out because, for lack of a better phrase, a perfect storm. It's the right group of actors at the right time with the right creative people. It's impossible to capture that magic again. It almost happens by accident, and it can't be manufactured. 
I've actually watched seven Tremor films, and the only one I didn't enjoy at all was the fourth one, Tremors 4 The Legend Begins. That takes place in 1899 with Michael Gross playing his own great-grandfather. Anyway, back to the original Tremors. It was just perfectly written. Tension, release, tension, release. Just the right combination of comedy and terror. I think it's just fantastic, but let's find out what others think. It gets a 75% on Rotten Tomatoes. Good, but not great. ADNW gave it 5 out of 5 stars and wrote, This is really good. It's really good old fun. The effects in this movie are amazingly good for its time, and it does good at being a PG-13 movie while being bloody. Phew, I uh, read it like that because there's no punctuation in it, not even a period. But I do agree. And so do most of the other reviewers, but not everyone. Aloha Boy S gave it a half star, and he said, I'm glad I never paid a penny for such crappy movie. Well, that doesn't really tell us much, does it? Let's try somebody else. Trichrome C wrote, Worst movie if the 90s, straight horse garbage. I think he means of the 90s, but I read it as he wrote it. Ashley M wrote, It's an alright movie. Great praise indeed, Ashley. But like I said, most people on Rotten Tomatoes liked it. On the IMDb parental warning, someone wrote, There are quite a few scenes that contain profanity. This is mainly towards the more intense spots, though. Two F-words, one is muttered and hard to hear, 21 S-words, 39 uses of damn, 7 goddams, 9 sons of bitches and son of a bitch, and 41 uses of hell. One middle finger. Who takes the time to count all that stuff? Someone else wrote, In some scenes, a woman's nipple imprint can be seen through her shirt. Honestly, I never noticed that. Like I said, the sequels were missing Kevin Bacon, but in 2005, a new TV series was in the works for Tremor starring Kevin Bacon. It was going to be his return to perfection. It was set up for Amazon Prime Video, but then moved to Sci-Fi, but eventually Sci-Fi passed. I can't for the life of me figure out why. There's even a trailer for it on YouTube, and though it looks really good, it's apparently not going to happen. In an article in Esquire in 2001, Bacon said, I would still love to do it, believe me. Maybe it needs to be the 30th anniversary or the 35th. We'll keep going. I'm Rhonda. Rhonda LeBeck. I'm up here for the semester. Yeah, geography. Geology. Yeah, well, actually, seismology. Earthquakes. And you two must be Val and Earl. I've heard all about you. We deny everything. <laughs> A little bit before I go. For more information on the making of this movie, there are two documentaries that are still available on YouTube. Tremors, Making Perfection, which is about 30 minutes long and has a lot of good interviews with the cast and crew of the film. And then there's an hour-long one called Tremors, The Making of Tremors. This has a lot of information about the Graboids and how they were created, and also has the original ending that was changed. Both have a lot of wonderful information, so... Uh, Anyway, now a quick announcement. My original plan of publishing this show every Friday just isn't working. I'm always trying to rush around and I never can get them done. This episode, for instance, is going to go out late. So from now on, my shows will be published on Monday morning. 
My next show being February the 21st. And next week is the week where I watch a movie recommended by a viewer. Next week's film was recommended by Nancy Fry. It was the 1946 Jean Cocteau version of Beauty and the Beast. This is a film I've never seen, and it's one that I probably wouldn't have watched normally. But now I've got to, because that's what I do on the third Monday of the month. So come back next Monday to see if I'm going to praise Nancy or curse her name for recommending the movie. Though I did a quick look on the internet, and most people call it the best version of Beauty and the Beast. But I'll be the judge of that, thank you. Anyway, I'm always looking for film suggestions. If you've got a film you think I haven't seen that I should see, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com. Coffee with Jeff is all one word. I also have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page, a Twitter page, and even a website. You can use any of those places to let me know what you think. And if you have an opinion on Beauty and the Beast, the 1946 version, let me know. One last thing, if you could leave me a review, hopefully a good one, on wherever you download this podcast, I'd be forever grateful. Hey, thanks for listening to this, and I'll be back a week from Monday. Take care. Bye. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas Multipass. You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano?